Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 25, The Devil in the Dark. Time now for another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Our mission is to burrow deep and tunnel through the messages and meanings of each episode of Star Trek. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. You know, Ken, I'm horta excited about this episode. (laughs) Me too, John. I'm excited to learn about horta culture. Oh, zing. Bing, yeah. I knew you had it in you. Is that all the puns? I hope so. That's it. We're done. All right, good. Done with puns, done with the show. <laughs> now, you know what? Devil in the Dark, that's the episode this week. It is so well known, and not only among fans, but I've even heard, now it may have changed from time to time, but I've even heard that this is William Shatner's favorite episode. Really? Yeah. Why? Uh, well, I'm, a couple of reasons, I mean, one of which I will get to in the trivia okay. section. Um, but there are a lot of uh, people who worked on the show who say that th- this is a standout episode, um, and I'm sure that we will kind of express much of that when we have our discussion. Um, now, to be fair, Shatner did go back, and when there was a DVD compilation of uh, favorite episodes, the Captain's uh, compilation, he then said that his favorite was City on the Edge of Forever. But we ah. haven't gotten there yet, so we'll pretend for now <laughs> that he's still sticking with Devil in the Dark. Okay, so this was his favorite one when he recorded or when he uh, um, filmed this one. Right. Okay. Right. Well, well, well he, he, said, he said later on that it was a favorite, but it was a significant episode for him during the filming. And I didn't mean to – I mean when I said why, I didn't mean to you know, be completely dismissive of the episode. It's right. just – I mean, I, you, there have been better performances that we've seen so far from him. So to hear oh, that sure. this is actually his you know, one of his favorites was a tiny bit surprising. But you said we would get to one of the reasons that it was important to him in the trivia. I have an idea. Why don't we get to the trivia? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. All right. Uh, so right off the bat here, uh, Devil in the Dark was written by Gene L. Kuhn. And there is a lot more to come about Gene L. Kuhn. His uh, history tied to Star Trek is critical. Uh, he has been referred to as the other Gene, other than Gene Roddenberry, uh, as one of those kind of figures who was so critical to shaping the show. Um, He was primarily known as a producer on Star Trek, but he wrote 13 episodes. Um, And uh, sadly, he died young. He uh, he died in 1973 at the age of 49. Um, He had been diagnosed with lung cancer and uh, a week later. He passed away. Um, But there is an interesting story about this particular episode. Um, Now, whether or not it's completely true, not entirely sure. But the story goes that um, the man who built and designed the costume for the Horda just walked into Gene Kuhn's office with this costume on or kind of demonstrating the costume and uh, and showed it to him. And Gene Kuhn said, that's great. What is it? Well, I don't know. Well, I'll write an episode around it. Hmm. So that, that's the stat. Yeah. To me, it sounds apocryphal. A little but, bit. I mean, maybe. I, yeah. Yeah. But I like it. <laughs> so, um, but speaking of that costume, um, I'm going to butcher a name here. Uh, Janos or Janos uh, Prohaska, who is a Hungarian uh, actor, stuntman, uh, creature actor, it, it, kind of the Andy Circus of his time. He, he played all kinds of animals and, you know, animal costumed characters in a lot of TV shows and movies. Um, he actually, we've already seen him in Star Trek. He played one, or actually two of the caged animals in the cage. So, you know, when they take Pike down to Talos and he's in his cage and you kind of pan around and you show the other animals that are in the cages there. Yeah. Well, at least two of those are Janos. Oh, um, and Yeah, yeah. And he also played, I thought this was so weird and I had to look it up on YouTube, uh, the Andy Williams show, late 60s through the early 70s. They had a character on there that was the Cookie Bear. It was, it was a bear. 
and all he wanted to do is eat cookies. Huh. And that that was our man Janos again in the bear costume, but they had to dub his voice. This was a talking bear, by the way. Okay. And uh, because he had a Hungarian accent, they dubbed him. Uh, but apparently, it was a very popular character. Yeah, because nobody would ever believe a bear with a Hungarian accent. No, 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 no. <laughs> he, he would have to be speaking pretty straightforward American English. Um, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, this same, not the same, but a similar costume design he had done uh, a few years before on an Outer Limits episode called The Probe. So if you check that out, you will see a Horta-like creature in that. Um, so do check that out. And um, oh, it, there's another little interesting bit of trivia here that uh, this aired in March of 1967. Mm-hmm. And there was a live NBC announcement over the closing credits saying that Star Trek had been renewed for a second season. Please stop sending letters. So the whole Save Star Trek campaign mm-hmm. uh, actually had an effect to that extent. Um, now, again, we <laughs> I, I like to point out when stories may or may not be apocryphal. The announcement really did happen, uh, but there is some revisionist history over the last oh you know couple of decades about the letter writing campaign and who was actually behind it and was it organized was it not um, and I, I think that we should definitely get into that maybe in a supplemental episode uh, talk to some of the people who were involved in that campaign um, because there was a lot. Uh, there's a lot there that uh, I've read at least saying that Star Trek may have been renewed more as a nod to NBC's desire to have color programming uh, that, that that may have had more to do with it than just simply, oh, there are fans writing in. Now, I mentioned Shatner and I mentioned how this was a significant episode. Mm-hmm. And this is not new trivia for a lot of people, but I find it to be such an interesting story that I wanted to share it again here. Um, William Shatner's father died during the making of this episode. Uh, it was shot in January of 1967. And famously, when he got the call uh, on set from his mother that his father had died, um, he continued on with the day's shooting. He, he couldn't even get a flight out until later that night. Uh, the production crew offered to shut down production for the day. And he said, no, let's go ahead and finish shooting my scenes. And then he would leave that night and go to the funeral. And he talks about, uh, he, he said this in his books and, and a few interviews that I've seen and read with him. He talks about kind of bonding with Leonard Nimoy and uh, Gerald Finnerman, Jerry Finnerman, uh, who was their cinematographer, because they had also both lost their fathers. And in fact, Jerry Finnerman had lost his father. Uh, he had gotten that call while he was on set some years before. Um, and he talks about kind of getting through that day through his friendship with these guys. And everybody on the crew talks about how incredibly professional he was. He went away. Uh, they shot whatever scenes they could without him. Uh, so they do use a stand-in for Kirk whenever you see him from the back. They got all the Spock scenes uh, taken care of. Uh, they only lost one day of production. They finally had to call it at a certain point. But he came back. They picked up and they moved on. Um, and you can read much more detail about this, like I said, in other uh, interviews with Shatner. But I have, if anybody can find it, um, I, I think I downloaded this online. There's an article from 1968 in a magazine called TV Picture Life. And it is an interview with William Shatner about that moment when his father died, when he got the call on set, and then him talking about death and talking about raising his family and talking about uh, kind of the mix of sadness and laughter while he's on his way to the funeral with his family. Uh, it's just a really interesting insight. And for this to be a 
TV entertainment magazine from the 60s to be talking about something that heavy, I thought was really interesting. But you get a little insight into Shatner's philosophies and, and fears. Uh, so TV Picture Life magazine, 1968, if you want a little more detail about Shatner and about this moment in his life. Wow, way to bring us all down. Let's see if we can't pick ourselves back up with a recap of The Devil in the Dark. Prologue. Welcome to the underground mining facility on Janus 6, where someone is about to die. Schmitter is left to guard the reactor room, and while he hopes the Enterprise will get there in time to protect him, rest assured, it will not. If they made red mining suits, Schmitter would be in one. The monster that's killed 50 miners just made it 51. Schmitter, like the rest of them, burned to a crisp as we head to the opening credits. Act 1. A distress call from the Pergeum mining facility on Genesis 6 brings in the Enterprise. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to meet Vanderberg, the facility's administrative head. He says about three months ago the miners opened up a new underground level, rich in Pergeum, and just about any other precious metal they might want. That's also when things started going haywire. First machines malfunctioning, then workers being burnt to a crisp. Though after examining the latest body, Bone says they're not being burned as much as being quickly corroded by some sort of acid. Vanderberg says this all started in the deepest levels of the mines, but deaths have been working their way up. Chief Processing Officer Ed Appel says he's seen the thing. Kind of. It's big. It's shaggy. It's fast. And maybe indestructible? Appel knows he hit it with a phaser, but it didn't even slow the thing down. Vanderberg says all of this has brought production to a halt. Workers won't go down into the mines. If Starfleet wants per GM, Kirk and company need to find and kill the monster. Hey, by the way, asks Spock, what are these round things? Vanderberg says they're silicon nodules. They have no value. And what do you care about the rocks? Find and kill the monster. That presents a problem. Spock says there is no life in the area except the miners. At least no life as we know it. What Spock would really like is for the creature to come back, though Vanderberg says that's when people die. Speaking of which, the new guy guarding the reactor room is now dead, too, and something has stolen a part from the reactor, without which the facility will be poisoned and everybody in it killed. And Janus 6 doesn't have a spare. Act 2. On board the Enterprise, Scotty is amused that Kirk thinks that he might have the missing part, a circulating pump for a Pergeum reactor. He hasn't even heard of one of those things in years, and yes, he can rig something up, but it'll probably only last 48 hours or so. Kirk tells Vanderberg he hopes they'll find the stolen part, otherwise they'll have to abandon the facility, which would be bad since about a dozen planets rely on the Janus 6 per GM. Vanderberg suggests Kirk find and kill the monster. Spock points out that the piece stolen from the reactor was the exact piece needed to keep the machine going. He thinks the monster might be trying to get the miners off the planet, and oh, by the way, it may be silicon-based rather than carbon-based. Kirk finds this idea plausible, while McCoy finds it laughable. Spock also seems to have an idea about the silicon nodules, but doesn't want to say it because Bones might make fun of him again. Anyway, if the monster is silicon-based, that would explain why the thing wasn't affected by the miner's phaser. The miners have phaser 1, not nearly as powerful as phaser 2, which is carried by the crew of the Enterprise. Phasers modified, Kirk arms and briefs a team of red shirts, find the monster and kill it. And be careful. And kill it. Spock finds a brand new tunnel, like made in the last hour. Then from another brand new tunnel behind them comes the monster. Kirk and Spock shoot it, and it scurries quickly away, but they took a chunk out of it which Spock studies. It is silicon-based, it's fast, and it's phaser-resistant, though apparently not immune. It moves through rock as easily as we move through air, and it's wounded, perhaps making it more dangerous. Act 3. Spock says there's only one of the monsters within 100 miles, though there are too many monster-made tunnels to be the work of just one. This leaves three possibilities. There's more than one monster somewhere, there's one monster that has been here for a very long time, or it's the last of a dying breed, which would make killing it a crime against science. Yeah, says Kirk, but we have to kill it anyway. He once again rallies the red shirts. Find the monster and kill it. Spock 2 addresses the red shirts, find the monster and maybe capture it. Kirk reiterates the kill order, then dresses Spock down for the whole capture thing. He also orders Spock to go help Scotty keep the reactor running, though Spock talks Kirk out of that order. Doesn't matter anyway. Scotty's workaround is broken down. They now have 10 hours to find the missing part or evacuate the facility. 
Kirk orders the evacuation of the miners, though Vandenberg says some of them would like to stay and fight. Kirk assigns them details, while he and Spock go off on the hunt as well. The two come to a split in the tunnel, each new tunnel showing readings from the monster. The tunnels rejoin further down the line, so Spock takes one and Kirk takes the other. And along his way, Kirk finds a whole room of the silicon nodules. He radios his find to Spock, who urges Kirk to not damage them. Suddenly, it seems to Kirk that he's had a cave-in, though the viewer sees it was actually the monster knocking over rocks trying to hurt, or at the very least hinder, Kirk. Spock offers to come phaser Kirk out, though Kirk says that won't be necessary. He'll continue on. Just then, a new tunnel is burned out of the rock ahead of Kirk, and out pops the monster. Act 4. Kirk points his phaser at the monster, and the monster stops advancing. Kirk lowers his phaser, and the monster advances. Phaser up, monster stops. Phaser down, monster advances. And they seem to reach an understanding. Spock radios to Kirk, warning him that the monster is nearby. Yeah, says Kirk, like ten feet in front of me. Dude, says Spock. Kill it! Only with less dude. Kirk says he doesn't think that he should kill it, though, since it's not trying to kill him right now. Spock is on his way, and while passing the time, Kirk tries talking to the creature. There's no return communication, though the creature does appear to show Kirk the wound inflicted by the earlier phaser fire. Spock arrives, though Kirk tells him not to shoot the creature. Subscribing to the if-you-can't-beat-him-join-him philosophy, Spock suggests a mind meld with the creature. Pain! Pain! Waves and waves of searing pain. It's in agony. And now, thanks to the joining of the minds, it can communicate, burning into the rock the words, No kill I. Spock, too, has learned a lot. The thing is highly intelligent. It's in pain from the phaser wound, though it's not reacting like a wounded animal, and it calls itself the Horda. Kirk asks Spock to mind meld the Horda into giving the reactor's missing part back, though Spock doubts it'll be interested. Kirk would also like Spock to find out why the Horda started killing. And he calls Bones down to the planet to check on a patient, not telling him that his patient is practically a slab of granite. Spock reestablishes contact with the Horda and gets some heavy beat poetry off it. The Altar of Tomorrow. An End to Eternity. Monsters, strike back, kill, the end of life, murderers. Bones arrives and is incredulous that his patient is the Horda. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, though Kirk orders him to get at it. Kirk urges Spock to tell the Horda that they want to help, and by the way, can we have our part back, please? The end of things. Cry for the murdered. Your part's in the tunnel over there. Kirk finds the part as well as a bunch of broken silicon nodules, and hey, wait a second, are these things eggs? Conferring with Spock, it turns out, yes, these things are eggs, and the miners have accidentally destroyed thousands of them. Speaking of the miners, here they are. They've come together as a group, overpowered Kirk's red shirts, and now, if you don't mind, we're going to kill that thing. But they do mind. Spock explains what he's learned. Every 50,000 years, the Horda die. All but one of them. That one is left to care for the eggs, thousands of which you guys kind of destroyed. Awkward. Vanderberg feels bad, though he's also a bit uneasy that with thousands of eggs still left, there will soon be thousands of Horda in the tunnels. But, says Kirk, they're natural diggers. You guys should make a mining deal. They dig. You pick up the Pergeum and other metals. You'll be rich. Sounds good as long as the Horda lives, which it will thanks to a serious patch job by McCoy. Time passes, and as the Enterprise prepares to leave orbit, Vanderberg calls up to say the Horda have started hatching, and they are already tunneling. And the miners have already found more Pergeum and other precious metals than they know what to do with. In fact, Vanderberg says the Horda aren't so bad once you get used to how disgusting they look, something the Horda had said about the humans to Spock. The end. You know, all I want to do right now is uh, go find a poetry slam. <laughs> And um, and I want to read the uh, the Spock uh, mind meld as think, uh, as a piece of poetry. I think you did a, a really good job with that. I think it's a good idea. Uh, I do wish, though, you had broken. You know that you would come back into this whole thing just with them. Um... <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, would that kill you? <laughs> yes. I don't. I don't. I don't pop out the beat poetry that often, dude. No, but it was really good. Yeah. yeah well, thank you. thank you. Yeah. Thank it's you. It's a totally different take on it from uh, from Nimoy. <laughs> Next and, week, and I appreciate that. You have to make it your own. Next week, I will do um, Shatner's Mister Tambourine Man, <laughs> <laughs> just for you. 
Hey, uh, this whole thing kind of made me wonder if uh, Starfleet doesn't have some sort of uh, scientific expedition uh, before they go into a place and okay it for miners to show up and do their thing. Well, I mean, bear in mind, there's only one of them for a very long time. We don't know what the life expectancy is for all of them. We know that every 50,000 years, they all die except one, which seems like a bad evolutionary plan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, not so good. Like, all of them die but one, and then we don't know, so that happens every 50,000 years, but we don't know how long there's just the one of them. Right. Yeah, because it could be like a month. But, right. <laughs> you know, so far down, uh, even if even if Starfleet had sent, I mean, like, how, how deep into a planet are you going to dig before you decide it's safe? Because they've been um, there mining for 50 years. It took 50 years to come across the Horda. Right. Which you think it wouldn't take that long because this Horda keeps digging tunnels. You think the tunnels would have shown up in a scan early on. Well, again, though, 50 years of digging down. I mean, yeah. It took a while. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I'm all right with that. All right. But, but speaking of digging. Yeah. Speaking of industry. So we're, we're kind of back to this idea that uh, there's a, a, a value to material goods yep. in the Star Trek future. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we are. Like big time. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of, um, well, for a couple of reasons, it reminds me a bit of uh, the guys on, on uh, in Mud's Women. Well, sure it does. They're, they're crusty miners. Yeah, and I don't mean miners like little children. We mean like guys who dig. Yeah, not 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 to go too cross science fiction culture here, but mm-hmm. was Lando Calrissian the only like you know suave miner in all mm-hmm. of the known worlds? And yeah. you can even you can even cross genres. I mean, the dwarves in um, in Tolkien, they're rough around the edges. You know, they go uh, the, underground. The dwarves in Snow White, sure. The dwarves in Snow White. Two. Well, actually, they're fairly genteel. It seems yeah. to me. Well, in the Disney version of Snow White, if you go yeah, like Snow yeah. White and the Huntsman, or you know um, that one with Sigourney Weaver a few years back, <laughs> they're a little rough around the edges too. But yeah. yeah, it's like it's like Lando Calrissian as far as cool miners, and then everybody else. Um, they're very blue collar. These guys from Genesis Six, they're like having a beer at Kelsey's place with Archie Bunker kind of guys. You know, right. they're like Archie Bunker kind of guys actually, except without the overt racism. <laughs> right, because all they well, know is it's, it's a, a monster a, a, trying to a kill species them. Species prejudice. Well, know. I mean, but again, all they know is it's a monster trying to kill them. They don't. They don't really recognize it as. I mean, when the whole thing starts, you're not even sure if everybody believes in the monster because only one person has seen the monster, and he's only kind of seen it, you know, without dying. Right. They don't know what's happening, so it, it's hard to say that they're being specious. Yes, that's, if that's the proper word. Uh, you know, until later when they actually hey, see it and then decide they want to kill it anyway. I, I, I want to point out that that one miner who uh, had the experience with the hoarder and then didn't die, um, he, he was able to get away only because he got in a blast with his phaser number one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, as opposed to the phaser number two. Right. We're very distinct about this in this episode. Well, we are when we have to make a distinction. It, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, um, you know, iPad these days. I mean, it, which is not true for the iPhones and not true for the Samsung phones, but I know the iPad and I guess, like, the iPods as well. I mean, you do have iPod Nano, you have iPod, you know, um, Touch, but you don't have, like, iPod Touch 6. You just have, you know, iPod right. Touch, and, and you just, you had the iPad and you had the iPad 2, and then you went back to iPad. So it's kind of right. like that with the phasers, you know. Right. Phaser right. One well, up and, until now, we've pretty much only seen Phaser 2. Yeah. This has been referred to as a phaser. And, uh, but, you know, I'm glad they made this distinction because then for, for decades, you know, every generation of fans who own the Starfleet technical manual, it's like you can go back and you can be absolutely sure the difference between a phaser number one and a phaser number two. There's no question at all about which is which. Now, when we get to next gen, mm-hmm. what are we sporting then? Oh, yeah, the Dustbuster. Like, it's going to be like, <laughs> right, Phaser 9. Yeah, a.k.a. the Dustbuster, sure. But. Right, right. Yeah. By the way, did, did you think that we're making a, a really big deal out of the uh, mind meld here, more so than we've seen previously? Because, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Spock was just doing it through a wall, and it was no problem. It was like, watch this, snap my fingers, boom, I control his mind. And I- now it's it, it's a really dramatic thing. It's really intense. He's got his own music. 
behind it. There are sound effects. Um, they, they talk it up before he does it. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, bear in mind that, you know, anybody who's come close to the Horda before has died. I mean, they've been, yeah. they've been corroded down to nothing. Right. Um, but we actually talked about how the whole mind control aspect of the mind meld uh, kind of got pulled back and and how happy we were about that because otherwise Spock and the and the Vulcans in general just become far too powerful to be you know, you know compelling characters. So I'm, right. I'm I'm kind of a fan of you know making this whole like I mean it gets a little too melodramatic like I understand this is revealing a deeper part of yourself Spock are you sure you're okay with that? <laughs> like you know like Kirk would okay but whatever. Um yeah. you know but to make it to make it more of a you know, a special occasion, we're going to learn more kind of thing as opposed to, hey, you know, hey, Samantha, wiggle your nose and make that guy do something. Right. You know, it was right. a bit better as far as that goes. And speaking of revealing things about Spock, um, he, he uh, man, he was all ready to shoot that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> yeah. Kirk, Kirk was in danger. He, he was just, uh, yeah, just kill it. Just back to Enforcer Spock for a moment there. Right. But, uh, but fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Kirk was in danger and that's, that's, you know, well, Kirk and Pike, I mean, uh, command is, is like, it's like a serious thing to Spock. Yeah. It would seem. And, and certainly we do have this interesting thing that happens when, um, Spock is talking to Kirk on the radio and, um, when they're in the separate tunnels and then the cave in happens. And for a moment, uh, Kirk doesn't respond to what Spock is saying and Spock, mm. you know, breaks into a trot and, you know, says, Captain, Captain, and then breaks into a run and starts, you know, yelling, Jim. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's, I mean, this is one of those times that we get that there is actual, you know, uh, friendship, concern, like real camaraderie, not just chain of command, but, you know, that despite his, you know, stated lack of emotion, uh, Spock truly cares for, uh, truly cares for Kirk. Time now to dig a little deeper into this episode. Get it? Dig? Because it's an episode about miners. And digging. There are plenty more where that came from. So I'm going to say, John, I find it interesting um, how like the Telosians we humans are in this episode. Uh, What? Well, the Telosians, you may remember... I didn't know how to do a damn thing with the stuff they had, right? They didn't know how to fix the things that they had once they broke down. And so they had this zany idea that instead we'll just raise a whole race of humans to, uh, you know, build things for us and fix things for us. Um, the weird thing, though, is it turns out humans aren't much better about this. Uh, the miners on Genesis 6, and, and this, by the way, is stupid. They, <laughs> they, have, they have one machine, right, that's keeping mm-hmm. them alive mm-hmm. in this what seems to be a fairly lucrative mining operation. One machine to keep them alive. They have no backup for that machine, no redundancy. And it's, you know, it's just doing a little thing like, you know, keeping breathable air to all of the people working in the mining facility. Um, they have no redundancy. They have no backup machine and they don't even have replacement parts. And, and Vanderberg's answer, the administrator of this facility, his answer when asked about it is, oh, we never really had a problem before. <laughs> right. <laughs> is that the time you do that? Like, do you buy a spare tire when you have a flat tire? Yeah, you think <laughs> that they would have packed the next one for the trip. You know, um, you because, and it's not a really big device. No, it's tiny. And, yeah. and with uh, at least a dozen planets relying on them for per GM. Yeah. You would think that somebody would say, so, like, you guys are good, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Is there, I mean, do you need more drill bits? Is that what you, I don't even know what you use. What do you, oh, an air filter, you know, do you need another (laughs) air filter? Might be able to help you out. And even Scotty is stuck. (laughs) I love it. Even Scotty. Scotty's like, what? Like, right. Yeah. Like I got one of those. Sure. (laughs) And then this guy who can pretty much put the enterprise back together with the 23rd century equivalent of a stick of gum and a paper clip. Right. It's like, I can build you an air filter that might last two days. Yeah, you do not want him working on your car then in that case. <laughs> Definitely not. 
Um, there was one other thing about about their operation, and none of this is really none of this is the message, the moral, the what have you. But these are mm-hmm. you know, as, as I'm one to do, little things I picked up. Sexism all over the place. No, I'm kidding. Oh yeah. No, not this week actually. Surprise, surprise. It was kind of neat to see. Um, we tend to think of Star Trek's future as a very clean future, mm-hmm. but here are these mining miners uh, in this mining facility doing something that, if anything goes wrong, can lead to sort of like a Bhopal or Chernobyl style mishap. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just weird to hear that we're. I mean, and they actually talked about. Did they talk about rare earths? I, I don't know if they mentioned it specifically, but certainly precious metals. They um, mentioned they, precious metals, but I want to say they yeah. even mentioned rare earths, which I was kind of like. Wow, because I hadn't heard about that until a couple of years ago. It, it's weird to think that this future that we always, you know, think of as being very clean and very pristine, and all of our needs are met. Nah, there are guys tunneling. I mean, there's, there's, there's still guys tunneling, looking for stuff that really, you know, if used improperly, could kill you. Yeah. Well, it, you know, here's the thing, though. I mean, it, it is, um, it is a very dirty business. Uh, but Vanderberg's office is very nice, and all of their uh, brightly colored jumpsuits are really pristine. <laughs> it's like you watching know? Menudo digging for like you know, for GM. <laughs> they were it's very yeah sort of a very very hip what, like yellow and orange and kind yeah. of kind of a purple purple yeah no red which is weird because yeah. so right. many of those guys were marked for death. Yeah. yeah. Uh, ne- next convention I go to, I want to see about 30 guys dressed like that. I think that would be really cool. It's kind of, with a belt that only goes around the back for some reason, too. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah, that was right. kind of odd. That was kind of odd. Yeah. Anyway, like but, I say, but, none but, of that's, the, that goes, none of that's but, the moral. None of that's no, the, no, no. But, but that kind of – it actually sort of uh, blends into still that question that I had earlier about the, the idea of things having a value – in the 23rd century because we, we kind of do away with money and we, we do away with these petty disagreements and the, these petty things that we fight over. And yet the, these are critical material goods that have to be mined and then have a value on the market. You know, Kirk says to Vanderberg that you'd be a very rich man. And yeah. he seems very, very happy about these Horta digging tunnels to, uh, to get him to his precious yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if it's like his precious. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's actually. Uh, I, I don't know why I'm remembering this. It seems like Kirk says something about their profits like going up like by a thousand, right? Which right. is which is by increments of a thousand, not like oh you'll get an extra thousand, but more like you'll be a thousand times more profitable, which right. is which is weird because who's buying? Yeah. And what is the profit exactly? Exactly. But what does that get you? So I know this is one of those tough things in Star Trek. We just kind of have to chalk it up to uh, the the anomaly that doesn't quite fit with our understanding of what this future is. Um, But it it certainly serves a story. Yeah. Yeah. Not unlike, again, not unlike the uh, guys in Mud's Women. Yeah, very much so. With the the lithium mine. Right. Right. Trying to figure out what the point is of this story, and, and I don't want to give away too much uh, with our ultimate kind of recap, our review of the show. But um, to me, the the beauty of this show is its simplicity, and um, it, to me, it is a very simple story about compassion. You know, we we have an enemy here who isn't really our enemy, and we've seen shades of this before. Um, but a couple of things that struck me watching this episode now for the umpteenth time, because I've seen this one a lot, is um, how long it takes us to get to that point. You know, I, I get it that we are introduced with the idea that the Horda is a dangerous monster that has killed people. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, we have to treat it that way. We have to treat it as a potential deadly force. Um but we don't really start to have any compassion for it at all until Spock starts raising these points that it is possibly the last of a species or, again, when he reveals that this is a mother with babies, you know. Um, so Kirk has gone down there with the intention of eradicating this deadly force using deadly force. Uh, from this mining colony, 
And yeah, it, it, it makes sense. But there was sort of never an initial statement of saying, well, we're going to try to not kill this thing because we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the whole play on our sympathies for the creature um, leads down kind of an interesting path here. Because you then have to ask, well, you know, how do we determine our level of sympathy or level of understanding for a creature based on its emotional or intellectual capacity? You know, we're not really there yet until we realize that, well, it's not going to kill Kirk. And then when Spock goes in for the mind meld, then we get the whole story. So only now do we start to have this heightened level of compassion and sympathy for the creature uh, this story could have gone a totally different way we got a monster. Go, uh-huh. no go ahead i'm sorry oh, I was saying, you know, in, in a different world this would have been there's a monster on a planet or in a mine killing miners so we got to go kill the monster at the end um <laughs> and, and even the enterprise landing party they're okay with the idea of killing the creature like that's the mission at the beginning go right. kill this thing right until we understand something about its emotional life and so I have to ask, you know, does that really make a difference? Well, it certainly does on Star Trek. I mean, go back to Bob Creter and the thing that was pretending to be Nancy Creter. Mm-hmm. It was trying to kill and it seemed to have no – I mean, that was such a weird creature because it seemed to have an emotional life. But ultimately all it wanted was salt and it would kill you know anybody to get as much salt as it could. And they right. would just you know OD on salt except that it couldn't possibly – and we still never came up with the idea of just get it to a planet and give it a bunch of salt. Right. And leave I mean, it alone. There, I mean, I, I want to say, remind me, did Spock have any concerns about it being the last one? Uh, they they mentioned that. Well, yeah. Well, no. Bob yeah. Crater mentioned it. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and Bones mentioned it when Bones was actually the salt-sucking monster. Right. But I don't remember. I don't remember whether Spock was actually that concerned about it or not. And in yeah. fairness to Spock... I mean, maybe this is a question actually not of, you know, the last of a species, but of, of, of an intelligence. Because, you know, when Spock says this could be the last of a species, and if it is, killing it would be a crime against science. And, you know, and Kirk's like, well, you know, put on your mask because we're going to commit a crime. Right. And Spock's like, yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> Until he realizes that there is, I mean, that there is more to it, that there is, that there is intelligence to it. Maybe yeah, but, I mean maybe Spock would squash the last bug of its kind if it was about to bite him, you know. Unless right. that unless that bug were able to scroll, I think. Therefore, I am. And, and we've seen that a few times here, where you know the the, the self preservation is a motivating factor. Sure, and, and I get that totally. But you know, <clears throat> whether or not a horda is more intelligent or less intelligent than the salt sucking vampire, right? Um, does that really make a difference? It seems like at this point, you know, we're saying, okay, look, the the crew here led by Kirk um, is made up of compassionate, scientifically curious individuals who, at least going into a situation, understand that the initial reaction is not to kill the thing. Um, and, you know, I'm not faulting the episode at all because we have established this idea that, the monster, the Horda, poses a threat. Um, but I'm just saying that over the course of the episode, it takes us a while to get to that point where we really drive home that there's something else going on in that creature. I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, do we start drawing kind of arbitrary lines saying that a creature has to be this intelligent or this have this much of an emotional life before we decide that we have to protect it First and foremost, yes. Even if even if we're in danger, yes. Yes, I mean, we I'm, need to, I'm we not need to draw sure. I'm not line. sure we should do that, but that's what they're doing in Star Trek, and that's they what the writers. So, yeah. That's what the writers were doing in 1960. Whatever. I mean, yeah. uh, Kirk's not going to protect the snail darter, no, right? Well. The spotted owl will not be saved under Kirk's <laughs> watch if 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 it means you know that um, the the flow of pergium is going to be halted. Now, in fairness. Uh, for GM, Janus 6 is not the only planet that has this problem. Where is it? I've got it in my notes. Uh, Kirk says that people are already complaining about the slowdown in per GM uh, production 
uh, complaining that their reactors are failing and that their life support systems are failing. Mm-hmm. So Progeum is a very, very important thing. Oh, yeah. Um, it would take, apparently, an intelligence to, to, uh, to make them wonder if they should do anything else. I mean, if we're talking about the banana slug, no, the banana slug's got to go. Let's salt this whole place down. <laughs> right. We'll get a couple of salt-sucking vampires to come in and clean the place up, and yeah. then we'll get our Progeum flowing again. I got to say, the one thing that worries me about this episode, and again, probably not, I think what you hit on is probably the message moral meaning, but we'll, you know, we'll decide that mm-hmm. for certain here in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that worries me about this episode is uh, the state of Horda-human relations a few years down the road. Because mm-hmm. um, we're dealing with one Horda right now. And this one Horda, while it does get to live past all the others, is obviously fairly uh, giving. This Horda is, uh, acts as the mother for a whole new race of Horda. But yeah. for however many years it's been by itself, its one job is to make sure that all of the eggs are fine, right? Mm-hmm. It's working for the good of the race. So we have to assume that this one is, is fairly altruistic. So when right. Kirk suggests to Vandenberg, you know, that, the, that, the, it, that he make a deal with the Horda, this apparently sounds great to the Horda. But here's the deal that Kirk let, lays out. Uh, you let the Horda live... And then you reap the reward from the Horda doing what they do naturally. So (laughs) what happens when you get like thousands of these things and and one of them says, hey, you know what would be cool? Uh, Something besides just doing this. I mean, this kind of goes back to the discussion that we had last week about, you know, does your civilization, can your civilization cap off at, at just having what it needs to get by and living happily you know, doing what it's doing, right? So here are all the Horda. They're working and, you know, they get whatever they get from tunneling and they're fine with that. And they don't get any reward from tunneling except for just, you know, tunneling. Right. If there are thousands of them and if they're as intelligent as we're led to believe from Spock's mind meld that they are, one of them at some point is going to say, you know what I would like? A day off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or you know what I would like? Something to eat besides this rock. Right. Yeah, I, I was thinking exactly the same thing that it, it you know it only takes one bad horda to spoil the whole bunch. Um, <laughs> well, or, or it only or, or, takes or, one you know one horda thinking for itself to to suddenly yeah. end up with uh, almost a slave trade going on, right? Yeah, yeah. Because the humans are perfectly happy to let the horda just you know do what the horda do. I wonder what would happen if the horda one day said, "No, you know what? We don't want to do that anymore." Oh, yeah. (laughs) I forgot to tell you. We got Phaser 3 now. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that that could go down kind of uh, a bad road. And and, and we, because we've established that the Horda are are logical and Mm -hmm. they are emotional, um, we're we're kind of lucky that uh, at least our initial communication with them is something beneficial. But... Yeah, this has the potential to not be a long-lasting relationship between humans and hordas. That's interesting. I'm sorry. Is it horda or hordas? Oh, (laughs) maybe it's horda, plural. Well, we don't know because we haven't had a lot of them until now. It's true. There was only one to worry about. (laughs) How are things with the hortai? So... Have we unearthed something wonderful here? Or is this episode best left buried and forgotten? Every week on the Mission Log, we like to pose a couple of questions to each other. We like to see if the show holds up, and we like to figure out what the show is trying to say. So, Ken, I'll pose it to you first here. Does the production hold up? Um... Yeah, especially if you're a fan. I mean, does the production hold up? Uh, the caves are a little cheesy looking, especially the ones that are just hollowed out by the uh, by the Horda. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the 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 new version, the the remastered, the redone version that we're all watching. I would say that probably the effects are a little bit better. I don't remember what they were like before. Um, the guy under the rug playing the Horda. I mean, as cool as the costume is and as great as the story is that, you know, he may have actually gotten the whole episode written just based on walking in with his costume. Right. I, I mean, it really looks like a guy on all fours under a rug. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> would you expect that to fly today? No. 
But, you know, this is one of those beloved episodes, right? I mean, yeah. with, with the beat poetry and the, and the, and the whole, you know, revelation of, uh, of, of this is not a monster, but this is actually, you know, what would you do if you were in this situation? Because this is more akin to you than you realize. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you, you sort of forgive it its flaws because it is what it is. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the the things that are hard to get over for a modern audience are going to be the set, even though there's a lot of effort put into that set. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the, and I like the idea that we have a lot of detail in that cave. It doesn't hold up really well, and the Horda itself doesn't hold up very well. And I, I kind of, you know, it, it, if you talk to somebody today who wasn't brought up with either old movies or classic TV, and you sit them down in front of something and they go, oh, that looks fake, that, 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 that effect is terrible, whatever. I, I just want to say, look, shut up. <laughs> if you're too concerned about that, you're missing all the other good stuff. Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of good stuff in this episode. I, I think um, first and foremost, the acting is great. Um, I, I, you know, it's very easy to make fun of Spock's emotional outbursts when he's joining with the Horda, uh, but. I think he really sells it. I think Nimoy, the actor, really sells it. And I think the other actors around him are great. Um, I also think that, like, the lighting, for some reason, I really paid attention to it in this this episode, is great. I think the music is great. I think the sound effects for the Horda uh, are great. Um, Not necessarily the the kind of rumbling noise that it makes when it's scooting along. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you watch – very often I'll watch uh, – an episode for review along the second or third time with headphones on so I can really pay attention to the, the soundscape and the, the kind of purring that it makes. These are great, great sounding effects. So all of these things really help. It's interesting to me that you didn't like the rock um, scooting noise because that was actually one of my favorite parts. Oh, really? You like, I like the purring better. I well, was, I mean, uh, the purring was interesting, although uh, I didn't... Yeah, the purring was interesting, but I like the fact that this living thing doesn't mm-hmm. make anything like a living thing noise until you get to the purring. But when it's like coming up on somebody, you don't hear like clomp, 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 or you don't hear anything that's otherworldly. Right. You just hear like this rock scraping across this other rock, right? you know, right. which is kind of, I mean, which is sort of a, a telling effect about what the Horda is long before we find out mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, Spock's supposition that it is in fact silicon based is, uh, is true. Right, right. Um, so all those things that I like definitely outweigh the things that I don't like. I just think it's unfortunate that, yeah, that, you know, it's kind of cheesy looking. Oh, well, it, it's going to be. Um, yeah, it may not be the first episode that I show to somebody who is just getting into Star Trek, but I do think it is a very important episode. And there are so many things about it that I like that I'll say, I, I'll get a very qualified yes, as you did. Now, I will say one of my favorite parts about this episode, moving from the production Mm -hmm. to uh, to the messages, morals, and meanings, Mm -hmm. this is a you see, Timmy, kind of episode. I mean, you know, your enemy is not necessarily your enemy or that thing that you thought was so different from you isn't necessarily. I mean, it feels like there are about five different ways that you could express that message, but – well, I mean, how would you how would you express that? Because I think we agree that I mean we're we're sort of aiming at that same target, right? Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, it, it, like I said before, the it, to me the simplicity of this episode is the beauty of it. it. It is a straightforward story of compassion, and it says that when we stop treating our enemy like an enemy, and start treating it as a being with a life. Um, then we can find common ground. And as we do in this episode, learn to work together as long as that lasts. <laughs> <You'll>, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you took it to a very dark place, my friend. <laughs> but, well, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the miners are working for profit. They are. And they the are. Horda are not. I mean, there is right. kind of something, forgive me, because I don't think this was the intended message, which, which we mentioned earlier, but I mean, Kirk's the bargain that Kirk suggests is you let the Horda live. Yeah. Take that bargain to them. <laughs> right. right. Well, of course they're going to say yes, at least for now. But I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of, again, that's uh, tunneling down a bit. 
um, the uh, the more the more in your face sort of you see Timmy kind of thing is um, yeah is, is the compassion angle that you're talking about yeah so I, I I think we can resoundingly say does the message hold up yes oh, I think, absolutely I think it does you and I would say so yeah yeah and and hopefully other people would do yeah I hope so <laughs> not everybody well, and, would but you know hopefully other yeah. people would you know well it's one of those things where where we uh, all of us as individuals want to say that that message holds up and we all mm-hmm. want to say that that is a critical message. The problem is then when you get down to real life and real situations, are you always able to live up to a message like that or a deeply held belief like that? And sadly, the answer is that no, we're not always able to do that. But kind of the beauty of a, a fictional piece of storytelling like this is that you then get to sort of step back from it and and realize the importance of that message. So, yeah. um, so it, I, I really appreciate this on in so many ways. It may be unfair to to do the whole what's going to happen to them five or ten years from now when that one horde, I mean, sits up. I mean, this really is more like an Aesop's fable kind of thing, like you know, right? Like right. the dog with the two bones, or the um, the horda and the hare. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, what did you think? Uh, please tell us. You can reach us at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, all with the handle Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us at 323-522-5641. You can even email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And please do not forget to go over to missionlogpodcast.com with our very snazzy retro website. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Be sure to join us next week, friends, as we take the mission log on an errand of mercy. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I think the Blob, the Horda, and Pizza the Hunt should do a movie together. Work on that and get back to me. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.